This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, as everyone knows, Bloomberg Business Week magazine currently on newsstands on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. It's a special double issue. It's all about the path to a COVID-19 vaccine. And I'm delighted to have back with us um, our next guest, Jason, who we've talked with before. Uh, Tonics Pharmaceuticals, they're on a path to a vaccine. They're involved in this as well. And we caught up with our next guest back in early June. Dr. Seth Letterman is chairman, president, CEO, and founder of the New York-based specialty pharmaceutical company. And he joins us on the phone in New York City. Dr. Letterman, nice to have you here. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me back on. Tell me a little bit about how your world has, you know, what's going on since we talked with you in early June? How have things changed? Things are moving forward. We are working tirelessly. It's an unprecedented global effort to get a vaccine for COVID-19. And I'm delighted that there are many diverse approaches to getting a vaccine. Uh, like many others, we're, we're working on a, a particular approach, and we're working on vaccines that elicit T-cell immunity. Mm-hmm. And remind us, you did such a nice job of this last time you were here. Remind us about T-cells versus antibodies. There are two parts of the immune system that recognize pathogens, and antibodies um, are short-lived, and T-cells are longer-lived. Antibodies float in the serum, so they're proteins, and T-cells are cells, so they have a whole complicated mechanism of action. But traditionally, vaccines against viruses have tried to elicit T-cell immunity uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, the durability of it, the long-lasting immunity, and also the way they kill viruses is more effective. Well, this is really important because I do think, you know, Jason, I think about how many people we talk with and we should, as you said, Dr. Letterman, anticipate multiple vaccines. But what's really important is we need a really, really effective um, vaccine that creates an immunity that is not just around for a few months. That's something longer lasting. And that's where T-cells come in. Yes. and But I think that the uh, the... The first wave of vaccines, most of them will probably be in the warp speed group. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of them will be maybe intermediate vaccines that will bridge us to the point where we can get longer-lasting vaccines that will be a more lasting solution. But right now, any vaccine um, that has appropriate characteristics for the appropriate person would be a big relief. So, Dr. Letterman, what have we learned about this disease over the last month to, to six weeks, either in terms of how it infects people, who it infects? It feels like we're learning so much. And to your point, there's so much attention focus on it. What's one thing that maybe we didn't anticipate or one important thing that we really have learned recently? Well, let me start with the paradox that many people compare this to the 2003 SARS that stuck in that that remained in Asia because it could be contained, and compared to SARS, 
the COVID-2 is much deadlier. There have been over 700,000 deaths worldwide for COVID-2, the new, the new coronavirus, and only 740 deaths for SARS. So it's a much deadlier virus. But in terms of the number of people who die as a proportion of people who are infected, it's much less deadly. So SARS killed about 10% of people who are infected, and nobody really knows the number that COVID-2 kills, but it's somewhere in the range of 0.5%. So maybe it's 1/20th as deadly, and yet it's killed um, you know, so many you know, thousands more. And I think that the key is it is very, very infectious. So we've learned that all over the United States, all over the world, and it will be very hard to stop this virus from ultimately getting to every person on Earth. So go ahead, Jace. I can well, I, I was going to say we, we only have about a minute left, and then we're going to do some news and come back, which brings us to herd immunity. How do we get there? Well, optimistically, we may be closer than we think mm. because places like New York City and Milan – who were very badly hit early on, have really stabilized. So while the antibody levels may only be at 25 or 30 percent of the population, the population is acting like it may be closer to herd immunity than those numbers would imply. So that could be, the missing piece could be the T-cell immunity without antibodies are protecting people, and we're just not measuring T-cells as easily as we can measure antibodies. Dr. Letterman, let's talk schools. We talk about it every day on this program. We talk about it around my dinner table, around Carol's dinner table, and many, many others, especially here in the tri-state area. Where are we? What should we be thinking about? How safe is it to go back to school? Well, it's also a topic at my dinner table. My wife yeah. is a teacher and my son is a professor, so we're all in this together. Yeah. I think that the decision to do college teaching remotely is a good decision from where we are at this point for coronavirus, both in the United States and, and international. And obviously we have to consider international students in the mix at colleges. Uh, it was unfortunate that UNC tried to go back and had a setback and decided to send the students home. So the Ivy League, uh, the week before that, well, uh, Princeton, uh, Columbia, others uh, decided to do to remote. I think that that's um, a good decision. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens with NYU, which is enforcing a strict quarantine program, but appear to be going on to have in-person classes, or at least uh, students on campus. So there will be a diversity of approaches, but I think the safest thing is to do college remotely. And part of that is the trade-off that the technology is quite good. In the spring, people got pretty good with doing remote learning. Now, in high school, I think that that is, you know, on the spectrum of colleges, when you get to middle school, um, you know, I think there's more interest in having some uh, students in, you know, in in school and in kindergarten and, and, you know, you know, for, for younger kids, I think it's more important to have them back. But I think the important thing is there's no one-size-fits-all solution to this. And the recommendation that communities and schools should make their own determination is probably a good one. 
Well, I have to say though, your you know your team shared with us some some points, and among them, in terms of returning to school, was a point that we simply cannot responsibly open physical classrooms, and it would be irresponsible to do so. And I guess we're talking mostly about colleges. I mean, that's pretty strong wording. I mean, if you have to make a choice, would you rather have kids at home right now? Well, for for colleges, I think that mm. from what we've learned, it doesn't make sense to have students. Uh, in classrooms together. They're able to use the technology. The technology exists, and the risk is too great. We've seen it um, from some of the athletes that came back to campuses early around the country. There were outbreaks in relatively remote parts of the country that were doing well. So I think there's a, you know, town and gown issue. Um, You know, the communities around these colleges, um, you know, deserve to be protected from the the risk that, that all these kids coming in at once, um, you know, would, would lead to trouble. But I, I do think that it's something that should be, is an individual solution, but I certainly think that schools that are attracting, uh, uh, you know, kids, young adults from all over the country and around the world, um, whether or not they go on campus, it's hard to imagine why and what the justification would be for having them in a classroom. All right, so, Seth, before we let you go, just got to do one minute or so on masks. We had this big debate <laughs> last night because <laughs> someone had read a story about gators being less effective based on one Duke study, and then that was knocked down. Where's the science on masks right now? It's pretty clear, right? Well, I really like the public uh, public advertisement you had on during yeah. the break. Morgan Freeman. If you can't listen to Morgan Freeman, right, who are you going to listen to? (laughs) Absolutely. And we should all be wearing masks. It is absolutely clear. But I think one of the things about masks is that masks are really to protect other people. And that's why Morgan Freeman nailed it. Um, You know, they really are about protecting other people. And to the same extent, vaccines. An effective vaccine that stops transmission is really to protect other people so that you don't become an unknowing um, you know, transmitter of the disease. So I, I think that, you know, it's going to be very hard, uh, given the how asymptomatic spreaders are such a big part of the problem, it will be very hard to tell the difference between gators and masks and N95 masks. So I think the advice should be wear the best mask you can and that you're comfortable enough with to wear if you have to wear one all day, it's pretty hard to wear an N95. Yeah. But um, everyone should be wearing as much mask as they could tolerate to protect other people. Which for all me, right. Jason, sometimes means doubling up, which there I've There you go. <laughs> yeah, checks out. All right. Dr. Seth Letterman, thank you so much. Really good so to catch good. up with you. Uh, come back and visit with us soon. CEO of Tonics Pharmaceuticals, joining us on the phone from NYC. Some very practical advice there around masks, around schools, and some hope for herd immunity. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Jason, you know, this next story mirrors something that we heard yesterday with the chairman, founder, and CEO of the Related Group. We're talking about Jorge Perez. Uh, They have a big real estate portfolio in South Florida, but he talked with us about some of the shifts that we're seeing in real estate. We've got a story in Business Week about that, too. Yeah, it is, I feel like, one of the debates almost that you and I are having uh, many days uh, on this program. So let's get into it with the writer and the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Prashant Gopal is the writer. He is a real estate reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us from Massachusetts. Also in Massachusetts, Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine. So, Joel, I do feel like this urban versus suburban debate 
it is one of the big ones, one of the big questions here. Yeah, you know, I think from the get-go, um, it was one that we sort of just identified as like, look, like, is this going to be a short-term shift where rural areas um, and suburban ones see uh, uh, see a short-term game, or is this going to be a, a bigger uh, a shift that will play out over years or decades? Um, and, and Prashant's story um, centers on a place in California, the Inland Empire, and and Prashant, bring take us there, and, and what the heck is happening? Well, you know, I think we have a good old-fashioned boom going on there. <laughs> it's like, it's really nuts, you know? I mean, this is, there are echoes of, um, you know, the last decade's boom, um, but with some differences, you know? So we... We centered on this. There was a project by by a builder called Lancy Homes, a Chinese builder, and they were, you know, releasing some lots. Um, and we happened to send a photographer out on on a day when they were just there were people lined up, you know, thirty sets of people in line at least. Uh, many they'd been waiting twenty two hours for uh, a chance to. Uh, get some of these homes, and they were wearing masks, so that's one of the differences. In addition to uh, umbrellas to protect them from 104-degree heat. So this is like, uh, it's it's nuts, is what I would say. It's like really weird well, um, to, well, during Prashant, a pandemic to have this. Prashant, talk a little, bit, a little bit more about kind of what's fueling it. We know mortgage rates are really low, and we know, of course, people you know, just want space. So they're leaving, you know, congested cities. Right. So at the base here, I think what is fueling this is the fact that we have mortgage rates, you know, for 30-year loans below 3%. Um, So, and, you know, you layer on top of it kind of an affordability crisis, especially in these cities. And um, and then also the the fears that people have in uh, it being in, in densely populated areas. So what's happening is like, you know, in, in the case of say, the Inland Empire, which is this urban area, 45 minutes outside of Los Angeles, 45 miles outside of Los Angeles, which could be many hours depending on the, on the traffic. Um, and in that area, for example, it, it's relatively affordable, you know. And uh, so when, when the rates fell, for a lot of people um, – they, the only place they could afford w- w- were the homes out, out there. So that's where they went. Um, that's where they're going. Um, and, and, you know, there's also this other factor, which is, uh, you know, the technology we have now that, that makes telecommuting very easy. So um, people don't really have to be in the city. So that's all of these factors are kind of playing together and, and leading to this frenzy. So, so Prashant, like, you know, like, look, this is an area 45 minutes east of L.A. That's not a place that um, uh, it, it would have been typically desirable. Uh, and yet, you know, because it's basically been cheap land and there's this boom here, uh, real estate developers might be able to pull something off. But, like, you know, isn't the risk here that there are places that maybe shouldn't have been developed for environmental reasons or droughts or any any other factors that suddenly, you know, we're going to have developments maybe where we shouldn't and this boom will potentially subside at some point and saddle us, saddle us with something else? Right. Well, you know, we don't know for sure which direction this is going to go because, you know, we're living in unprecedented times. But, you know, you have 
this is wildfire country, you know, a lot of these areas um, where where this construction is happening. But you know, the the it could go in a couple directions. You know, if you look if if you look at the past, you know, um, a decade ago, uh, the Inland Empire was um, you know boom. It was where the bubble burst. You know, in California, it was where where you know some of the worst damage happened, and where, where you had a lot of foreclosures. Um, and this is also the same place where a lot of people are buying homes with shaky credit and, and low down payments using FHA uh, government loans and, and veterans loans uh, uh, to do that. So they are, you know, at risk. They're vulnerable. So there, there is this possibility that, uh, you know, you could have another um, something bad happen, especially with uh, enhanced unemployment potentially uh, seeming to have gone away and, um, you know, uncertainty ahead. On the other hand, right, this is what people are wondering, whether this could be a change in, a, in the paradigm. Maybe, uh, you know, employers are going to get used to remote workforces right. and um, the cities will die <laughs> and, you know, places like this will come to the fore, you yeah. know, and, 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 and this could... It, could be a suburbanization like we never saw it before. So I think I think that's a big know. I think that's a big part of it. If remote working really sticks with us, then that will be a game changer. If it doesn't, and people still need to be in the city, close to cities, what have you, I think that will will change this kind of exodus right from urban centers. Yeah, Jason. absolutely. All right, Prashant Gopal, thank you so much. Real estate reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from Massachusetts, as was Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Check out that story; it is online at Bloomberg.com, BusinessWeek.com, and of course on the Bloomberg Terminal. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's do a little Business Week economics. Obviously, economics top of mind for a couple reasons today, not the least of which, Carol, is that jobless claims number. Totally. Let's get into it with Yelena Shalechevis, senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics. She joins us on the phone. Yelena, what's the reaction? What did your team say as you guys were digesting this number, which did catch a few people off guard in terms of it rising? Well, uh, it was unexpected, for sure. It uh, was an increase instead of a decline that we uh, were expecting. But, you know, looking at things at perspective, you just this is uh, relatively small to the latest movement in the series, and uh, we will probably see another decline going forward. So, uh, first of all, there are uh, technical uh, factors here that contributed to uh, an increase in the weekly uh, initial jobless claims number because seasonal factors were expecting quite a, a large decline at this time of the year. But claims increased a little bit. So the factors, the seasonal factors exacerbated the um, increase and uh, we got somewhat a bigger number in terms of uh, jobless claims. But, um, you know, looking through this uh, uh, seasonal volatility, I think claims will continue to decline just simply because people will be exhausting uh, benefits. Uh, 26 weeks is uh, the maximum amount of uh, weeks uh, a person is allowed to receive benefits uh, in terms of regular state benefits. So uh, uh, these people will either have to, uh, you know, find a job after 26 weeks, or if they can't, they will have to move on to some special uh, programs such as extended benefits. And, um, you know, 
the 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 regular statistics will not show uh, will not reflect uh, this. They will continue to decline, which won't mean that uh, the labor market is doing much better. The labor market is actually not doing well. Uh, a lot of people still uh, unemployed, and uh, it's just not going to be reflected in the statistics. Yeah, and we know a handful of states have issued kind of, I guess, that supplemental aid, that first round of funding um, for the Lost Wages Assistance Program. I think Iowa, Arizona, Mexico, New Mexico, Louisiana, uh, and a few others. Um, But the majority have not, and I do wonder how much of that will kind of help out this situation, Yelena. Well, uh, something is better than nothing, right? So we are talking about uh, the executive orders by President Trump, and uh, the states are processing uh, this um, executive orders, and they will start paying uh, unemployed people uh, uh, because of uh, what was in those executive orders. Unfortunately, this uh, 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 this augmented benefits will not be as uh, big as the six hundred dollars that we previously saw, and uh, not uh, everybody will be um, eligible. So I think that the biggest stimulus package is still required uh, for us to continue to uh, function as an economy and uh, for uh, income to continue to grow or at least remain relatively stable so that people can afford uh, consumer spending. So, Elena, last question for you. I'm guessing you and the team have been watching the headlines and maybe even tuning in each evening to watch the Democratic National Convention. We will hear from the nominee, Joe Biden, tonight. Uh, economics, I would imagine, is going to play a pretty big role in his speech, in his vision for what he wants to do that's different from the current administration. What's the most important economic theme? Is it jobs? Is it something else? Is it the deficit? What, what do you expect to hear? And, and what are your colleagues talking about when it comes to maybe a different plan for the country? Sure. So uh, we will be watching that, of course, and we will be uh, watching any hints uh, about uh, the, um, the course for the economy going forward. I think what will really matter for the markets and for the economy, it's not just uh, who wins the White House, but it, it will also be very consequential what kind of, uh, um, you know, uh, the power we will get in Congress. Right. So, uh, if, we, if both the White House and Congress uh, turn democratic, that will probably mean more spending, uh, easier uh, stimulus packages going forward and so on. But I think in either case, we will see uh, large deficits for quite uh, some time simply because the economy uh, yeah. is recovering from one of the greatest crises in, in the modern history, and, and it just needs that. Right. You don't erase that anytime quickly. Um, Blue, uh, Bloomberg Economic Senior U.S. Economist Yelena Shaletova, thank you so much for joining us on the phone on this Thursday. I mean, it's it's not an easy way back, Jason. And I do wonder the longer time, you know, the longer someone's out of work, that temporary job layoff becomes permanent. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. Drive. 
This is the drive to the close. That funk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's. Uh, I just knocked myself in the head. Got, got so excited <laughs> about uh, our next guest. Great to have back. He with is us. a favorite. He is. He's our guy, Tom Plum, President, Chief Investment Officer of Plum Funds. On the phone from Madison, Wisconsin, we really looked forward to his visits when he would come to see us in New York and tell us about his travels, and he had spent some time in China. We have so many things to talk to you about, Tom. First of all, how are you? How is it out in Wisconsin right now? Well, uh, Wisconsin, like everywhere or many places, is, is dealing with continued rise in the number of cases. Uh, you know, we have new regulations about masks uh, on all indoor things like that. Uh, I think, you know, the, it's going to be really, really difficult to determine what the social impact of this quarantines and self-quarantines are going to be. But um, like the rest of the country, I think uh, there's certain segments of the economy which are going to stay hurt. They're hurt badly now. They will have tough time recovering. And there's other sectors of the economy that are looking pretty good and, and showing some real decent rebound. Yeah, you know, you definitely see that play out in the market. So let's talk about it. I mean, one of the reasons we like you, because you're nice, Tom, but we also like, oh, you know, <laughs> your fund is is consistently a top performer, uh, 99th percentile for the past five years, according to our data, Bloomberg data, uh, beating just about all of your peers. I think you've been returning on average annually about 9% or almost 9%. So let's talk to us, because I think we, you know, repeatedly are saying, well, wait a minute, everybody, the market, you know, Gains are in a certain few stocks, tech stocks in particular. And I do wonder if that is a cue to get out of them or to just say, well, that's kind of what our economy is increasingly. Well, we've talked about that before, Carol, that um, the all these really significant secular changes that are going on with the new digital economy, the uh, the fact that we're buying things differently than we ever were before, all of those changes that were gaining momentum actually just accelerated through this COVID. And I think uh, even seeing reinforcement that the trends are going to continue to grow, not only grow in size, but grow in the growth rate of change. And, you know, I think, you know, yesterday, for example, uh, Alibaba in China reported China's been recovering faster than the United States, but it reinforced that even these companies that are internet uh, based and uh, online purchasing, things like that, that they're still going to grow when the economy comes back and that you're not necessarily going to revert back to other trends like, you know, brick-and-mortar retailing, for example. Well, and Tom, one of the things that you have talked to us about before, and I I was reminded of it when I was reading over the notes prepping for this, uh, is about these enablers, the payment enablers. And I know that that's an area you've liked for a while, but one name that seems to slip through a lot of those conversations is American Express. Mm. Talk to us about AXP. Well, American Express, um, you know, obviously got stressed because of the uh, fact that there's a lot of travel and entertainment that goes through their cards. That Carol then, is not uh, using her cor- Carol's <laughs> not using her corporate card, me? and let me tell That's you, right. that makes <laughs> a All difference, your fault, Carol. But um, but the thing about them is that uh, besides having uh, holding the loans, which is different than Visa or Mastercard, which are basically processors, and then your banks and 
uh, some credit unions and things like that actually hold the loans. American Express does hold the loans, and so there's a lot of concern about what will happen with the loan quality going forward. And we've been watching that, and it seems to be stabilizing. Uh, the neat thing is because the dollar amount of transactions come down and people pay off their cards uh, often monthly, uh, basically this uh, poor quality or credit default rates or anything you want to talk about, it becomes a smaller and smaller number on that base. Meanwhile, you have one of the three or four major uh, systems for processing electronic transactions. And so we think that not only are they going to show that the credit quality is not going to be a big negative, but that that value of that interchange that they are really significant around the whole world, that that's been basically uh, hidden by the fact that people are concerned about, oh, that they have less travel and entertainment things going through their cars right now. That's going to recover. It will recover probably slower than what we'd like to see, but that's going to recover. And you think about it, then what do you have is the one of the major credit card processing companies with uh, channels around the world, and it also is going to see volume pick up just like Visa and MasterCard. We'll see volume pick up when people start going back to restaurants and hotels. Yeah, and you know, there's an interesting story in the Bloomberg uh, about Amex buying the teams and technology behind the online lender, um, Cabbage. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, we see them increasingly looking to be, you know, even more involved with the small business space, Tom. Right. And, and you know, a few years ago, American Express had the reputation as being sort of a carriage trade card. Mm. Um, what we've seen is they've expanded the, their relationships with merchants and they're continuing to invest in technology that's going to allow them to grow in the different segments of the market. Tom, just quickly, 30 seconds, one name that you've added to recently, just really quickly. Well, uh, we've continued to add to things like Alibaba. Um, Mm. Again, a 34% revenue increase this last quarter. They're back to the same growth rate they had before the whole virus started. Uh, and we think that domestically, uh, China is going to continue to be focusing on their consumer and their consumer section of the economy. And that Alibaba, again, as we've talked about before, is Amazon on steroids. Yeah, that's yeah, for sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, really nice to hear your voice, Tom Plum. Uh, congratulations on our, all your continued success. Nice to hear things are okay, yeah, or as too. well as can be expected out there in Madison, Wisconsin. Tom Plum is the president and CIO, chief investment officer of Plum Funds. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Bloomberg Global News.